Just a couple announcements this morning before we get started. Uh, please join us uh, on Christmas Eve uh, at 5 o'clock for our candlelight service. Again, that's uh, on Tuesday at 5 o'clock here um, for our candlelight service. We will come and light the last uh, candle in our Advent. It's a Jesus candle, and so we'll come and celebrate the birth of Christ together 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Also, uh, later on in the service, we will be taking up a special offering, the Christ for Christmas offering. So um, if you have not done so, please uh, even now prepare for that offering that you will give later this, after, this morning. That offering goes uh, to um, the church, and it's a way for us to help in our benevolence. So please, that's a way for us to give back what God has given to us to other people that need help in that place. If you remember, at the beginning of the year, all of us got a card like this. Um, it's a prayer card that we had began to ask God to uh, do four things for us. And we were pleading with Him and expecting that He would meet those four things. If you remember, those four things were this, that God would send us ten new families this year that we have an opportunity to minister to. That five families would join the church this year. We'd get to see by God's grace and power in kindness, five salvations, five people that were once far from God turn in repentance to Him, that God would draw them to Himself. And lastly, seven baptisms. Um, it's with a great joy in my heart that I can stand here and say God met all four of those requests as of this morning. Amen. Let's give Him a round of applause. You know, God's Word says this in Luke chapter 15. Uh, that when one sinner repents, that there's a party that happens in heaven. And uh, by God's goodness and kindness to us, uh, we got to participate in at least five parties in heaven. Uh, so amen to that. So there was great rejoicing in that. And this morning, uh, getting to be a witness of seven baptisms. That, that's a huge deal. I pray that we do not look at that lightly. Um, I told the deacons this morning, I've already begun to pray and seek God what He would have for us as a church for 2020. And so I pray that you would join me in that uh, endeavor as we pray together. What would God have for us as a church moving forward? Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into Romans chapter 5. Maybe in my uh, humble opinion, um, one of the greatest few verses in all of the Bible. And so I get the honor and privilege to preach and teach that to myself and then to you this morning. Let's pray together. God, we do come humbly before You, a powerful, mighty, majestic God. And we are so grateful for Your kindness that has been poured out onto us. That we, uh, this humble church, would get to see Your divine power in five salvations. That You are still... Uh, what Your Word says, You love sinners and You delight in drawing sinners to Yourself. And we got to see and witness that. That it's divine uh, power from You and You alone. And yet we got to be in partakers and an audience to that uh, these last 12 months. And so I'm grateful for that, God. I'm grateful for the baptisms that we got to see. I'm grateful for the families that joined this church. And I'm grateful for... Uh, all the opportunities that you blessed us with to minister to new families. And I pray that we would never take that lightly. I pray now, God, as we come into your word, that you would 
through the Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts to receive what You would have for us through this powerful passage. God, this is the linchpin for our Christmas season. These few verses this morning. And so I pray that You would open our ears, our hearts, and our minds. That we would walk away with a renewed sense of what You've done for us and given to us in this great gift. Jesus, Your only Son. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 5. That's page 942 in your pew Bibles. Uh, If you've been with us, we've been celebrating Advent. The word Advent is a Latin word. We get it from the Latin word Adventus. means the anticipation of or the arrival of or the coming of. That we anticipate this arrival of Jesus. We are in the Advent season of not the first coming, but the second coming. We are waiting expectantly for Christ's return. Amen? Uh, I hope we are. But there's this gap period of His first arrival and His second arrival when He will come and bring all things, as Revelation 20 says, all things He will create new again at His second coming. But we're in the middle of that eager anticipation of that second coming. And we've been looking at these Five things. We'll look at the fifth one on Tuesday, but the, the five things we've been looking at are that our peace that we have with God, our hope that we have with God and in God. We rejoice in what God has done for us. And today we'll look at God's love for us. And so we're going to look this morning at this idea of God's love for us. We will pick up, I know in the bulletins it says, Uh, Chapter 5, verse 6, but we'll start actually in verse 5. It says this about God's love. I don't know about you, but this season tends to uh, be one of the moments in our calendar year that we get to see more of God's love in different ways. People love each other. Uh, You'll turn on the news and you'll see people giving huge giveaways. You'll see people loving other people. You'll see People doing more kindness and goodness to each other during the holiday season. That's been my experience. But that all pairs into comparison of our love experience that we have with God. We only can love because God first loved us. First John tells us that. And so this morning, we've got to understand what this love is or who this God that loves is. And then we got to look at ourselves, who we are. And finally, we'll look at what God did in His love for us. So let's look together this morning at verse 5 about God's love. What God did and who God is. It says this in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, it's only because of God's love, and I'll come back to it in a moment, We can only experience peace with God, hope in God, and rejoicing in God because of God's love. Without God's love, you'll never experience the peace of God. Now, I don't know why theologians have done it this way, but they always end Advent with the love of God. I wish they would start with the love of God and everything builds on that, but uh, the historians, our theologians, start with the peace of God. That's why we started with peace. We see that in this text. Like, why did Paul not start with the love of God? I think and believe that Paul is building on something to capture our hearts. 
for us to have this recognition. I cannot understand peace with God if I do not know the God that is love or God's love. I cannot have hope in God. My hope is going to rest in the love of God. Because if God does not love me, I've got no hope. If God doesn't love me, I have no peace. If God doesn't love me, I'll have no joy. So these three things have been building and pushing us to see and have our minds and hearts awakened to the love of God. And so Paul says it this way. Because of what? God's love has been poured out onto us. Circle the word love in your Bible and circle the words poured out. See, when we come to the text and we read the word poured out, what does the picture, when you pour something into something, there, there's a moment that you stop pouring, correct? Or you're going to have a mess. You're going to pull a cedar, right? And so we come and we think, oh, God poured out his love for us and then put the pitcher down. No, what this word means, it's an ongoing pouring of God's love for us. That the moment that God, it says it this way, for God what in John 3.16? So love the world. So there's this ongoing love that God has poured out onto us even before we were believers. Now we experience it way more as believers, but the moment you were born and came into this world, you experienced the love of God. And it's been ongoing and pouring into you from that moment, and my hope is that this morning you will awaken to when you came to Christ the, the amount of love that was poured out on to you. You're only here because of God's love for you. You're here this morning because God and His goodness and His love for you put some more breath into your lungs. We do not deserve that. That's God's great love for us. That's why we can rest assured that when it says in Romans chapter 8, turn two pages over, Romans chapter 8, we lended this last week with this passage, but it, it's catapulted us, and I said that we'd get back to this this week. Romans 8, he says this, verse 37, No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through Him who... Loved us. We are only conquerors because of He who loved us. And then he says this, the Apostle Paul, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, neither heights or depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. Now think of all the things that God or Paul could have said in that moment. He could have said the kindness of God. He could have said the goodness of God. He could have said the holiness of God. He could have said on and on and we go. But the Apostle Paul used this one word, love. The word means this. That's the word that we have. There's four words in our Greek for love. The Apostle Paul uniquely chose this one word, love. It means the word in the Greek is agape. Here's what you'll see. God calls us to agape love. We see that in other parts of the text. But nowhere that I've found in the New Testament has God ever said that we already have agape love. That we 
already are doing agape love. He says we are called to that, but he never refers to us, mankind, with agape love. We do not have agape love without God's agape love. And so what does it mean that God has agape love for us? The word in the Greek is this. It's selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. Turn back to Romans chapter 5 in light of God's agape love for us that's being poured out onto us. God, ongoing, every moment that you have breath, pours out His unconditional, sacrificial, selfless love onto you. That is who God is. And now the Apostle Paul says in light of who God is, look what he says. We'll skip verse 6, but he says this in verse 7. I'm going to get back to verse 6. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, uh, one would die, dare to die. So the Apostle Paul then says, hey, look, now let's talk about you. I just got done talking about God. Now let's talk about you and who God died for. He says this, like, man, some people might die for a righteous person. Some might die for a good person. And all of us are like, that might die for a decent person. But that's not who you and I are. You're not a righteous person, and you're not a good person. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us four things, and they're progressive in this text. This is who you are. Not 99.9% of you. 100% of you. All of us in this room are these four things. Now this isn't very, um, this won't grow churches to preach this way, but this is the truth. People do not want to teach the truth. Like we, we want to say, oh, well, there's some goodness in you. There's some kindness in you. There's some of this in you. No, the Apostle Paul, through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this is who you and I are. Four things. So who are we? Because if we understand who God is, we understand who we are, your mind will explode because of God's love for you. You'll throw out one of those emojis with your brain blowing up. You won't be able to comprehend. But if you come to this text and you think there's an ounce of goodness in you, then you'll just say, yeah, of course he would. Of course. Why wouldn't God do that for me, a righteous, godly person? But that's not who you are. That's not who I am. Who are we, church? It's scary what we are. But we have to believe this. Because when you believe these four things, the birth of Christ will take on a whole new meaning. The death of Christ will take on a whole new meaning. And your salvation will take on a whole new meaning. So let's look at who we are. Four things the Apostle Paul says. I'm going to tell you the four things, and I'm going to come back and talk about these four things. In verse 6 it says this. For while we were, that's we, that's everyone. If you want Greek, that's we means we means all. All always means all, everyone. We were still weak. So put that in your Bible. We were first weak. At the right time, Christ died for the next one, ungodly. So we're weak, we're ungodly. 
For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might dare even to die. But God showed his love for us that we were what? Still sinners. So we see automatically we're weak, we're ungodly, and we're sinners. Christ died for us, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, that's Christ, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Circle that in your Bible. I'm going to get back to that. For if a little, for if while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death. That's the fourth thing. We were enemies of God, of his son. How much more are we reconciled? Shall we be saved by his life? The four things that you and I are this morning. No doubt about it. No debate about it. No questions asked about it. The first one is this. You and I were weak. Weak. Now that word, I wish they would have translated a different way from the Greek to the English because it doesn't bear the weight of what it really means. That word simply means this. Like, like cedar's weak. Right? We would all say, if Cedar came in here, I came in here, Cedar's weak. But even in Cedar's weakness, there's certain things he can pick up. Right? Like he knows how to pick up a ball and throw it at me. Right? So even in his weakness, so we come and we think weakness, there's still some things he can do. But that's not what the word means in the Greek. It doesn't mean you're weak and there's still some things you can do. The word literally means you're powerless. So we are powerless as people, meaning we have nothing that we can do. There's no amount of strength that you're going to muster up to do anything. You are powerless, is what he says. So he says you are powerless. Why we were still powerless. That, that, that's what this means. That's, that's a moral powerlessness. Like, yes, well, you and I will make decisions throughout the day. Like, you're going to leave here. You're not powerless over what you're going to eat for dinner. You're not powerless over what, what you're going to get me for Christmas. See what I just slipped in there? You're like, you're not powerless over those things. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, spiritually, you are powerless. There's no amount of strength in you that will ever hear me clearly in your powerlessness will choose God. You were powerless to choose Him is what the Apostle Paul says. Why you were still powerless, Christ died for you. we got to believe that. There's not 1% of you that has the power to choose. Because then it rests on you, not on Him. It doesn't say why you still had a little bit of strength, Christ died for you. It says why you were powerless, why I was powerless, Christ died for all. For me. So the first thing, do you believe you were once powerless? The inability to choose. Powerless. The second thing is this in verse 6. But God showed his love for us and died for us while we were ungodly. Meaning, there was nothing about us. That was inherently good. Like godliness is this, that we're like God. But he says you were ungodly. There's no characteristic 
before Christ, dying for you and accepting him, that there was any part of you that was godly. He tells us this in Isaiah. Even your righteous deeds were filthy rags. Even the things you thought you were doing were filthy rags before God because there was not the love of God in you. Therefore, the love of God is not in you. It's not going to pour out love to other people. You'll do those things, but it won't be because you are godly. So do you believe you're weak? And do you believe you were weak? And do you believe that you were godless? Then the Apostle Paul says this. You see how it's getting worse? Like he says, you're weak. Okay, I'm I'm down with that. Now he says, man, there's no godliness in you at all. That's getting worse. Now he goes for the throat, and then he's going to go really further throat, the last one. The next one is this, that we were what? Sinners. He says that in verse 8. But God showed his what? His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word sinners comes from this. It comes from one that sins. You know what sin is? Sin is simply this. We've missed the mark. That's what the word sin means. Here's the, if you're shooting at a bullseye, if you're shooting at a target, the sinner is the holiness of God. And what the Apostle Paul says is we're sinners. Like when we take aim at the holiness of God, you know what? We, we don't even hit the target. Like you, you don't know where your arrow went. And so he's saying to us, you have all missed the mark on the holiness of God because you're ungodly and because you have no power to even pull the bow back to hit the mark. Do you and I believe that we are sinners? All of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what Roman tells us. Do we believe that? Now, Here's what you don't want to believe if you're honest. Like, okay, I'm down with being weak. I'm down with being powerless. I'm down with being ungodly. I'm down with being a sinner. But now look what he says to us. What does he call us? Enemies of God. Like, man, that, that's below the belt, Paul. Like, you can be powerless, you can be ungodly, and you can be a sinner but not be an enemy. You know what the word enemy means? Straight out defiance. Like when we have enemies against our country, what does that enemy want to do, wants to do? This is what I heard this week and read this week. An enemy of the United States wants to do what? Take all of our power, take all of our authority, take all of our reign and sit on the throne. And they are cutthroat in that. That's what happened at World War I, World War II. That's what it meant that Hitler was our enemy. Saddam Hussein was our enemy. Bin Laden was our enemy. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to us is, hey, you were Hitler. Whoa, 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 Todd. That, that was a wicked dude. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul calls us. We are enemies of God. Our sole purpose before we came to Christ was that we wanted to what? Rule and reign on His throne. And we would do anything and everything in our power to usurp His authority, remove Him from the throne, and for us to sit on the throne that is rightly 
his. We are an enemy of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe this morning that you were powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God? So that's who you are. But now let's jump back to who God is. What does it say? For why we were yet these things. Christ reconciled us to God through His Son because of His love for us. God loved us in spite of us. God loved us as enemies. God loved us as sinners. God loved us as ungodly. God loved us in our powerlessness. You see, my great fear for me, my great fear for you, my great fear for the church, and my great fear for the universal churches, we don't really believe that those four things are true about all of us. That somewhere inherently we're at least good because that's why God chose us. Or in some way we are inherently have some capability of choosing Him. But no, the Apostle Paul says, the linchpin to our salvation doesn't hinge on you at all. The linchpin of our salvation hinges on one word, God's love for us. You see how Christmas changes everything? Now again, if you're a mom or your dad in this building, and you have a baby, are you going to give your child up for one that's powerless? One that's ungodly? One that's a sinner? And one that's an enemy of yours? Would you do that? No. But God demonstrated His great love for us. That he gave his only son for us. That's out of his ongoing love for us. And now I want to ask this last question in closing. I read this this week and it's one of those moments when I'm reading, studying, and I just kind of sat back at my chair and soaked it in. The question was this. What did God's great love save me from? You ever thought about that? Like God loved us enough to save us. But what did he save us from? The first thing I thought in my head was sin. And I thought, oh, it's more than that, it's hell. But then as I get to read on, this is what the writer said. And I was like, oh my goodness. You know what God saved us from? God saved us from Himself. That's what the text says. It says this. Verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified. That's what God's love does for us in Christ Jesus. It justifies us. By His blood. That's Christ's sacrifice for us much more shall we be saved 
by him from what? The wrath of God. God saved us through his love from his wrath. That's what we deserve. We all in this room, because of who God is, deserve the wrath of God. That is what weak, powerless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God deserve, is His wrath. And yet, when God created us and saw us back in Genesis 3 and fell, He said to Himself, I love them too much to pour my wrath onto them. So He saved us from Himself. And how did He save us from Himself? His love. John 3.16. When you read John 3.16, for what? God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son. Why did God give us His Son? Because He loved us to save us from His wrath. He did not save you from hell. He did not save you from your sin. He did not save you for anything else other than He simply saved you from His wrath. Now that's the love of God. And how did God show us He loved us? That He would give us Christ, His Son, for unto us a child is born. For unto us a child is given to absorb the wrath of God Now, if that's not love, and that doesn't do something in your heart for your salvation, I don't know what will. And my prayer has been this week, simply this. God, show us your great love that you saved us from your wrath. That is love. Remember what love is? Love is this, selfless. God could have chose any way in the world to save us from his wrath. But how did he choose his son? That that love is not only selfless, but it's sacrificial. It costs God something to save you. And it costs Christ his life to save you. And here's the beauty of it. It's unconditional. It's not based on anything you do or do not do. God's unconditional, sacrificial, undeserving, selfless love has been poured out into our hearts on an ongoing basis. Let us pray. God, I'm grateful for your love for us. You saved us from your wrath. You saved us from yourself. We got to witness that, God, even this morning in those three baptisms. Your great love poured out onto our souls. Poured out onto those three souls. Ryder, Chelsea, and Kristen. As a demonstration to us, the church, 
of your saving, sacrificial love and your wrath. Thank you for your kindness, God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. But, oh God, thank you for your love we do not deserve. Lead us, guide us. We come into Christmas. Allow us to see Christmas in a new light because of what you gave to us and the greatest gift, your son, Jesus. Amen. If you're here this morning and you do not know and have not experienced the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love of God the Father, please find me, find one of the deacons, find Brother Frank. We'd love to share that gift with you. That would be the greatest gift that this church would ever give you on Christmas. It's the love of God. If you're here this morning and you're just struggling and you need prayer, you need to uh, embrace the love of the Father, we want to pray that over you as well. And again, let us now say, Merry Christmas.